Hi, I'm Ted Price from Insomniac Games. On today's episode of the Game Maker's Notebook, I chatted with Karthik and Guha Bala. They're the founders of both Vicarious Visions and Velen Studios. Karthik and Guha started Vicarious Visions while in their teens, and they described the incredible journey they've taken over several decades, including their founding of Velen Studios. During our talk, they covered a lot. But what I know will be of great interest to other game leaders is their approach to breaking down seemingly impossible problems into bite-sized pieces, how they see failure as a good outcome, and how they've applied lessons learned at MIT grad school to think in unexpected ways. Please join us. Welcome to the Game Makers Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Makers Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. All right. Karthik Guha, welcome. Hey, it's great to be here, Tan. Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, you guys have been in the industry for a long, long time, and I hope you don't mind if I ask you some questions about the early days, just so our listeners understand you know, what is definitely a very unique start, in my opinion, uh, to, to a career in games. So uh, you started Vicarious Visions together as, a te- as teenagers, right? Yeah, it was uh, it was in our parents' basement uh, in high school. I was fifteen, Guha was fourteen, and uh, it was called Vicarious Visions when we started. And uh, which is there's a funny story to that too. Um, but but yeah, we we just got into games and loved playing games on PC, particularly adventure games and uh, one of the popular games at the time, early 1991. and. Uh, we had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> so what was what were some of the adventure games that you enjoyed playing together? I think we were like big into like the so Sierra. I was on a little bit more of the Sierra character. Yeah. You know, yeah, uh, uh, Heroes Quest, which I think for trademark reasons went to become uh, Quest for Glory. The King's Quest stuff, the uh, Space Quest, you know, basically you know, the, the range. Uh, and then we started getting into Access Software's Tex Murphy Adventures. Uh, as well, which started bringing in full motion video and, uh, you know, real actors uh, and that kind of thing uh, into games as well. Uh, there were definitely, uh, I mean, it's it was the first time that we could really go on a narrative adventure that was graphic, you know, uh, around that time. Um, but it also brought with it uh, lots of limitations, like you really needed to know what was going on in the designer's head to solve some of those puzzles. Uh, and click as many pixels as you could in some of the rooms to figure out where that hidden key was. Um, it was like the first type of hidden object game, I guess. It would be the hidden pixel game uh, now. But those are the games that we're really into. There were a range of other ones, too. We said, well, why not start there? Um, you know, I think uh, the earliest games that both of us used to play were games like Starflight, um, which was, I don't know if you remember that one, Ted. It was released through Electronic Arts in the 80s. Um, and you go around the universe with ASCII characters. Uh, well, a bit more than that, CGA graphics. And, um, you know, you could do trading and you could 
you know, I had a space uh, a spacecraft that you could customize and that kind of thing, and really sort of an open-ended exploration. And the limitation of the graphics really opened up the imagination. Like it became like the less you see, the more you can imagine, like a book, hmm. you know, that kind of thing. And so that's really what started it off for us. And what was there ever a question about working together or not working together? <laughs> I think well, that's a really interesting point. You know, I mean, actually, one of the things that uh, we do actually when we do this kind of podcast is we're, we're a bit of a pen and teller act, which is like <laughs> we really have to wait for the other person to talk because we know that we both want to talk at the same time. And that's actually one of the hardest things to figure out. You know, if you're talking at the same time, you cannot, nobody can understand you. You can't listen. And, you, you know, a lot of things, a lot of brotherly conflicts arise from that. So it's actually taken a while to figure that out. But in a lot of ways, we moved around a lot as kids. So we were born in India. We grew up in England for the early part of our childhood, lived in Florida for a little bit. And then when our parents when they, they had to redo their residencies when they were about 50. And we moved up to Rochester, New York to do that, Western New York. And so whenever we moved, it was a new set of friends, a new community. Uh, but of course, we knew what we liked to do, which were creative projects together. So we were new to Rochester at the time. And we we're like, well, what do we do? We're bored. And we started looking at this. And uh, I think, Karthik, you were calling around for upgrades to our PC. Uh, and you met who became our first mentor, the person that became our first mentor. He's an entrepreneur that quit his job at Eastman Kodak, which was you know, a big Rochester company at the time. And he was making PC sound cards, a new type of sound card, the Gravis Ultrasound. He said, what do you boys like doing? And we said, well, we like creative projects and we like video games. And so he said, well, you should make one. We said, well, what are you talking about? We don't know how to do that. And he said, well, there's nothing that should stop you. And he, or, uh, he gave us a Turbo C book and an Autodesk animator package. And he said, go learn it. And so we thought, well, how hard could that be? It's really hard. <laughs> and uh, But it was amazing. It was just amazing to start doing that. So that's how we started. Started because, you know, we were new to a community. We, we met an entrepreneur and, and he said, yeah, go go do this. You know, it's cool. And it was. Well, I, that's a giant, I, I got to tell you, it's a giant leap from uh, getting a Turbo C book Learning C, using it to, I, I imagine, write your own engine and all the all the gameplay code, and then learn Animator, which is a program that I recall costing in the tens of thousands of dollars back then that could only be run on an SGI workstation. Um, that's amazing. Oh, we had the budget version of Animator. <laughs> we had the very budget version of Animator, oh. and it was it was it was it was still more affordable than what we couldn't afford it. So the fact that he gave it to us. Uh, this fellow Paul Travers was amazing, yeah. Because it was about five six hundred dollars, which was still way out of reach for us. I mean, we were we didn't have any money. We were looking for cheap computer parts, let's say. Uh, and um, the key thing there was that we had very limited computing. You know, we had an XD computer that we managed to make it an AT computer, uh, and uh, we had a basic compiler, and we had this animation software that said, okay, if we point if we get a digital camera, or even if we started making drawings, and so I started doing all the drawings for our games, we could take it to Kinko's, scan it, and then bring it into, into, into you know, our, our, our engine. And then we could videotape ourselves. And then we bought a target board to take still images and then started keyframe animating it to be able to, you know, 
to make make these things move. And um, and actually, the reason why we did an adventure game in the start was we thought, well, that's a good place to start because we know we can make static images. We know we could define room boundaries. And we can start animating things on it. But the process of doing that is just, it was just ri- ridiculous. It was amazing. You know, like every problem, every step, there was a problem to solve. And each of those is like a creative journey, which is, of course, the nature of our business. Like it's like every aspect of our business has this journey. And you know, it, now looking back at it, it's it's very different in some respects, but it's that curiosity that makes it fun to work and make games. I think there's a lot of you know there's there's a lot of deconstruction in that process. You know, how do they how do they do that? How do they make that? And uh, and and just figuring it out along the way. I mean, we were also fortunate that um, you know through our mentor Paul, he you know he. Uh, he designed the, the Gravis Ultrasound, one of the first, it's actually the first wavetable synthesis music card. You know, in the early Sound Blaster days, this this was pretty revolutionary technology. It didn't take off the way he had hoped, but it allowed us to kind of get into the industry that way. So we started working trade shows and, um, and getting to meet, you know, other um, developers, uh, you know, in the industry. And... Uh, that was what was mind-boggling. People were so welcoming because we were just a bunch of hacks trying to figure things out. But uh, it turns out there were other people in the same boat. And uh, and then there were folks who were further along that journey. I think we were all in the same boat at that time. <laughs> yeah, early 90s. Um, but it was a great way to learn, you know, and uh, and uh, it was a it was a great way to, you know, kind of meet other, other developers uh, who had produced amazing stuff. I just remember meeting... The folks at Looking Glass, you know, when uh, Doug Church and others, you know, uh, back in the day, and uh, we learned a ton, and um, and it, and it was it was one of those things when we were working on our first game, and it was it was really hard, you know, writing an engine on our own. Uh, it turned out so we met uh, this gentleman uh, Brent Erickson, who was a who was a developer since the Commodore 64 days and worked at Access and he wrote the engine for the Tex Murphy games. And, uh, you know, he's, he spun out on his own with his own studio. Um, and um, he gave us his engine <laughs> to, uh, to work on our first game. That was all written in 8088 assembler. So we had to learn that, <laughs> but, uh, but it was, it was quite the journey and that's how we built our first game and got it published. That's amazing. Yeah, that, that's a funny, funny thing about the engine. We we're like, so, you know, this, um, you were talking, Ted, in terms of you had to build a whole engine and we we're like, well, that's going to be a challenge. How do I get started? So, um, this is a, Brent Erickson is a really cool guy. We met him because we looked at the, looked at the instruction manual for one of the Tex Murphy games and we saw the customer service number. These game companies were small at the time. So we called up the customer service and I think Karthik, you did it. Yeah. And it was like, well, can I talk to Brent Harrison, who happened to be the CEO of the studio? And um, you just pretended like you knew him. So he actually got transferred to him. Said, hey, we have this game company and so forth. And so he said, yeah, I'll license you the engine. And then he flew to Rochester to meet us. And then at the other end of the, you know, sort of the jetway, there were a couple of high school kids, and he's like, ah, oh, you can pay me when you finish your game. <laughs> and so that really worked out well for us. I don't think we even had a driver's license at the time. Um, and um, 
So he had a cool visit and stuff like that and said, hey, you know, how much trouble can these kids get into uh, anyway? And uh, but uh, but in fact, it was a huge help to us. And then we built on that engine. And when we finally published it, you know, we we made good on our promise, of course, and, uh, you know, uh, paid for it, you know, as well. Um, but it's a, it's really that spirit of helping each other. Mm -hmm. Um that was so important for us when we when we started. Do you think that spirit continues to exist or in our industry? I think it's easy to run into roadblocks, but it's everywhere if you really look. Yeah. Yeah, I mean look, I, I think that I, mean, I think that it's, in it's that sense. Yeah, we are we are optimistic by nature, but like I think it's it's uh it is everywhere. It's amplified in so many ways and there's just so much knowledge sharing and um there's so many ways of, of, of learning now and, and collaboration. People are generally accessible, at least, you know, you know, what we found and what, and it, we, we make the time as well to meet with a lot of student teams, student projects. I mean, cause I think that's an important part of what we have to do, right. In terms of paying it forward, uh, you know, folks like Brent, uh, and even Paul, that's what they were doing back then. Right. You know, and uh, looking at a couple of scrappy high school kids trying to make this thing work, and uh, you know, generally, I find that that's that's one of the most amazing things about our industry. It's a great point, and without that, we probably wouldn't have an industry. I mean, because we're talking about a time where knowledge was scarce and sometimes fiercely guarded by the larger companies. But I, I also remember, I remember going to a three D O dev conference and. Uh, everybody just being so friendly and nice and, and me as a noob, uh, knowing nothing about game development, everybody was just willing to just share. It didn't matter what they were sharing. It just, hey, look, join us. This is a really fun, as you guys pointed out, fun, creative journey that everybody should be able to experience. And uh, I, But I also agree that your point today, the information is everywhere and it, it is really cool to see people at all levels, just like you guys, you know, being willing to mentor other groups uh, who are interested or people who are interested in getting into the industry. That's so I was just soapboxing, so I apologize. So. Yeah, no, no, it's great. I mean, I, I think that, you know, with technology and like, you know, sharing, obviously there's, there's a lot of middleware, um, you know, out there. Um, I do think that, you know, more can be done, especially with bigger, more established uh, companies being more open with the technology. And, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of knowledge that's shared through Game Developers Conference and things like that. But I don't know where we would be if, like, you know, folks like Brent and Paul were like, here's the software, here's the code, go make something better with it, you know? And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it was, it was very open source in that sense, you know? And uh, um, it, it just allowed us to, um, you know, build and, and, uh, and make better things. And I think that, um, I think that there's a lot of that happening in the industry, but I, I think that we're at such a scale now, um, maybe bigger companies could be less protective, yeah. you know, of, of some of that. And it could open up innovation even more. That's a good point. Well, I, I also, I, I want to go back though, to those early days. And one of the things is that, one of the things that fascinates me about your journey is that you both went to MIT grad school, right? We did. And that was many years after. <laughs> that, that just blows my mind. <laughs> 
Yeah, we did that. Uh, no, I mean, actually, that was a little crazy period in our lives, actually. We were making one of the Skylanders games, Skylanders Swap Force, uh, and we'd already sold our uh, studio to Activision a few years earlier. And that was a big game, complex game. It was a new kind of game that we were developing at, uh, uh, at Vicarious and, and as a lead studio for Activision. And we decided to do this MBA there. At Sloan, we did that because it's very quantitative and, you, you know, it's a little less um, fluff, I think. And we, we, could, we thought it could really help us in understanding sort of how to make, build better hmm. games. Let's say not from a creative standpoint, but from a how do we make it a sustainable enterprise, which is good for people, good for consumers, good for creative as well. Uh, but we also had our second set of children at the same time. I had my uh, twins and Karthik had his younger daughter as well. It was a little nutty period of time between 2011 and 2013. So what actually did you get from going to uh, business school that you think has been uh, useful for you in growing villain and um, and just moving ahead in the industry? You know, I think the, there's a lot of things that we learned. Um, it was it was amazing to to be with that cohort from people in other industries and how there's a lot of similarities. It allowed us to really widen our lens because this is all we've known, you know, since childhood and and this industry. And it was it's really um, it was really wild to see the commonalities and how other companies tackle similar problems. So there's a lot of learning with, uh, with other students, but it also allowed us to really um, be a little bit more structured in our thinking, being able to break down, you know, situations from the past, why certain things work, other things didn't work. Um, and, and just look at it from that different lens. And, you know, and going forward, you know, we're, we're thinking a lot about the business in terms of how do we improve it? How do we improve it at a, and, and evolve it at a larger scale? Because everything is just getting bigger and more complex. And, um, you know, are there ways of scaling it down? You know, the MIT program in particular is very, it's what they call action learning, where, you know, you're taking these courses, but uh, you're able to apply what you're doing right back into the business uh, while, you're, uh, while you're in school. And so, for example, you know, we were working on uh, Skylander Swap Force and building all this new technology with, uh, in, in, in Toys to Life. And so there was these significant R&D hurdles, but like the whole process of designing toys and uh, the lead times in manufacturing these toys with some pretty sophisticated technology that needed to be deployed at scale and build the game and there was so many pieces to it, moving pieces to it. Based on, uh, I remember taking this one course uh, where we were modeling out that entire system of how to manage that production, you know, in uh, in the toy design uh, and sculpts and, and all of the dependency chain associated with it because it's both physical as well as like creating the software side. And the number of characters and toys that we had to design in this ungodly short amount of time. And on paper, it's and and just historically, it was just like never never going to work. Not going to make the deadline at all. And we also are sensitive to to costs and and budgets. And uh, so we were taking this one course that looked at um, manufacturing and other industries and stuff, and uh, had methodologies and tools 
on optimizing workflow. And especially with all of these different uh, you know, dependencies, and you can actually build simulations in software. You can actually build the simulation in, in Excel, run the simulation to see what the outputs are going to be, and you'll be able to like, you know, measure every step of the way and, and see what that output is going to be. So we built this model for this course of how we were going to get this game shipped, you know, and get all the toys designed and get all the characters made and, uh, you know, go through that process. And we made changes to the simulation to try and, uh, you know, hit our date and, uh, and cost targets. And it also included all of the approvals times and the volatility that would be there with executive review at Activision and different creative stakeholders that could cause delays in the process. Um, and the model spit out a particular date. And we ended up following this approach and we got it done one day prior to when the model said it was going to be done. It was phenomenal. We wouldn't have shipped otherwise. So uh, it was a completely different way of thinking about um, managing that production. We'd never have learned that, you know, otherwise. So uh, some super cool stuff, you know, that was just very practical. Yeah, just two things additionally that I took away from that experience. Um, outside of the the raw kind of material that you learn and stuff, which, you know, you sock away and, you know, use it in different contexts and stuff. One of, one of the things that I really took a lot of heart in is all big things can start really small. You don't have to have all the structural advantages enormous budgets, huge teams, um, and high overhead to be able to actually launch big things. And it's a, we, we went at the program because it was really a program that was well-suited for entrepreneurs and saying, okay, well, how do I, okay, I've got this competitive world out there with all the big guys in any industry, but how can I make a difference in that? How can a small team make a difference? And it turns out, example after example, industry after industry, that's really possible. And of course, it's possible with ours, too. Like almost all the big insights in our industry start with some small team making a breakthrough and saying, oh, my God, that's now possible. And until then, everyone is focused on the current business model, the current thing, doing it at scale, doing it big, doing it with big structure and all that stuff. And then out of nowhere, a new linear story format comes out of Telltale, or out of nowhere, free to play comes out of Zynga, or how to, and they all start small. And they get big over time, maybe, but everything starts small, and there's unique ways of approaching it. The other one is that there's often a notion that there's one way a business model can work. And of course, that's not the case for people that, are, that have been around. We, we observe this, but in any given moment, there's probably like, three to five business models that sort of work in the games industry. And everyone's like, okay, how do you fit into that thesis? Whereas if you only look about 24 months out, there'll be another one that replaces one of the existing ones and a totally unexpected one that comes out of the blue. So it's a way to be able to say, all right, well, where's that going to be? <laughs> and let's take some confidence that we can actually invent that. So I thought it was pretty cool because it allowed us to actually probably part of it was a work and part of it was the time that we spent in the car together on the way <laughs> back and we talked about those things. Yeah, the, the drive to Boston and back was good. Were you able to share those learnings with your with the rest of your team pretty, pretty readily? We did. And that was actually, uh, uh, it was an important part of the structure. I mean, it was, it was coming back in. In fact, the thing that we had to 
personally, I had to resist was uh, coming back in Monday morning, all super excited about some of the things that we learned and wanting to apply it right away and just kind of being a tsunami in the studio, you know, <laughs> had, to, had to not, had to resist from, from doing that. I had to be a little bit more measured um, in the approach. But it was about being able to, you know, sort of teach and reflect and see how some of those elements could be, uh, could be brought in. And, um, you know, and that, that organizational learning uh, was going to be an important part of it. So on the topic of learning, sharing knowledge, do you all at Vellon have a, a training program or training programs that you offer to folks to, to have sort of similar outside of the industry revelations? I think that's something that we need to start doing, you know, from starting Bellin, I can't believe it's been five years since we started. Um, you know, we started off really small. So a lot of times we would just take trips, you know, with the people uh, at the studio, we'd go variously to, um, you know, crazy things like uh, at MIT's Media Lab, we'd have the Center for Bits and Atoms where they're trying to make programmable molecules, um, you know, for example, so have computer code and self-organizing particles and things like that. We'd go and visit sort of the 10-year-old stuff that we could make into toys. Uh, we'd look at some of their prosthetic work and huh. uh, that kind of thing. We'd actually attend their student contest, this, um, both the business plan contest, but those are a little less interesting than the undergraduate end-of-year projects. They have one that's called Toy Lab where it's just a product design course, but the students there are constantly inventing stuff. Like they'd be in many, and, 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 you know, lo and behold, you get a bunch of students at MIT and they're going to, a lot of the subject matter is centered around gaming, not digital gaming per se, but just play. So any kind of product, there's probably some play involved. And we go there and be like, oh, I didn't think of that that way. Now, growing the studio from a handful of people to getting kind of to a mid-level scale to a few dozen, then it becomes a bit more like you can't load them into a bus. Right. And nothing's quite as intimate. And that kind of thing. Now we have about 100 developers available, and we just have to think about it totally different. And I think when we got into product shipping mode, we sort of got a little away from that. We need to get back closer into it. So I think that we had something really early on at super small scale. We need to double down on it actually now uh, again. But it is a, it's super important from a couple different standpoints. One is the mix of we used to pride ourselves saying, okay, better, very experienced veteran team, but it's not enough. We need to have a constant flow of new talent to be able to re-energize the thinking and to re-energize the talent pool so we can understand our consumers even. But then to bring that talent pool along, that kind of chain of mentoring, which occurs informally right now, requires a little bit more structure uh, and that kind of thing. So that's just on the individual development side. The other part is just curiosity. Um, you know, through all our years in development, the one thing that both Karthik and I got the most energy out of is the periods of time that we could be truly curious about things. Mm. And there's a part of development that's like, I got to get it done. I need to get my game done. I need to get it shipped. And those are the times that you're converging on everything. And of course, there's a lot of smart people that are required to do that, but it's not the real divergent thinking. To get that divergence, this kind of new knowledge is often the way to stimulate it. And we need to get back into that as well. Uh, invention mode is a constant part of what we do. Hmm. 
I think sometimes, you know, when you're in the middle of pro- uh, doing projects and finishing them, especially you get a snap out of that mode, snapping into that mode on a regular basis is just as important. You know, leaving, uh, leaving vicarious versions was um, one of the hardest things that we've ever had to do. Um, it was 25 years. It was the 25th anniversary that we left. And, uh, and you know, we were going to start over. And starting over with that clean slate, it's, it's, it's daunting and exhilarating at the same time. And it, that curiosity, thinking more divergently, looking at innovation differently, um, it gave us an opportunity to do that. And uh, um, because, because it was a blank slate, and so that first year, it was a, it was a small group, and so we could we could work um, in a in a very fast way, failing, trying ideas, coming in Monday morning with something unique, and it was well because we didn't start the studio with a with a product idea. That wasn't that wasn't it. It was it was all about what kind of a company do we want to be? What kind of culture do we want to build? Um, how do we want to think about things and um, in, a, in a unique way? And so that gave us the foundation for the first year, which was a lot of R&D and exploration. And there was a ton of learning um, and especially looking outside of the industry, uh, outside of the game industry. Um, there was um, inspiration from self-driving cars and drone technology, which then led to Mario Kart Live as our first product. Um, so there was a lot of that divergent thinking and innovation that, that was going on in the first year, uh, first couple of years while we were in R&D. And then we're trying to productize and you sort of go heads down and, and you're building the team. And I think in the last year and a half uh, with, with COVID, some things have been on autopilot. You know, we try and you know make things, you know, make things work. And now that we're coming back together, we've actually grown a fair bit. And I'm sure other studios have gone through the same, same thing. And some of us are meeting in real life for the first time as we're uh, getting back into the into the studio. And um, and with that growth, it's not necessarily a small studio of, of veteran developers who can finish each other's sentences anymore. And, uh, and so now we have to put new systems and things in place um, for that training and development and then be able to balance um, innovating with, with what we have going on right now and uh, building the community, building, you know, building our player base and, uh, and that sort of thing. And as well as looking at brand new ideas that are totally left field. And finding a balance between that, you know, evolving, uh, you know, our current games with the player community with doing something emergent and very different. And, uh, and that requires, you know, sort of a whole new set of learning. And so we're, we're grappling with that right now as a, as a studio. Hmm. Well, it seems to me, though, too, you when you started Villain and Mario Kart Live was your first you know, the first big game, having done Skylanders and Guitar Hero, what's really, I mean, cool to me as an outsider is that you built on those strengths that you had already developed. I mean, your unique penchant for combining hardware and software, right, in, in sort of unusual ways, definitely seems to have come through. 
And was that a was that a conscious desire of yours when you formed Bellin, just to sort of continue down that particular path? Yeah, <laughs> I was going to pull out the index card. <laughs> this thing you can't see it on the podcast, but I'll uh, I'll go through it. So it wasn't an explicit desire like that. I'll tell you what we uh, what we did. Um, we wrote a business plan, and the business plan is written on an index card, a three by five index card, and there's there's four bullet points to it. And uh, so we wrote this October of 2016. Step one, build an awesome team. Step two, find the magic in something new that the team is really passionate about. And then step three, once we found that magic, you know, we figure out the go-to-market strategy and who the partners are. And then step four, we build it, we ship it, and then we evolve it with the player community. This was our... Velen Studios business plan. And uh, Guha and I put a bunch of money into it. And we, uh, we brought in some investors who were willing to buy into this 3x5 index card. And that's what we set out to do. So it wasn't, ex- it wasn't anything more explicit than this. And uh, I know it sounds kind of dumb, but like distilling it down to this sort of simplicity and clarity was challenging. And maybe it was... Maybe it was the time at MIT. Maybe it was stuff that was percolating in the background for many years. Not sure. But, uh, but we had this. And, and so step one was building an awesome team. And as we were putting this team together, um, and, and some of us had worked together in, uh, previously, it was you know, where that curiosity was taking us. And, and I think you know, we, we had uh, some team members who uh, who loved tinkering with with hardware and software? Who had uh, a passion for it? And uh, let's go, let's go look at something new. One of our engineers said, "Hey, I want to go learn how self-driving cars work." And I don't know if it has anything to do with anything, but let me take a course on that and let me go learn some stuff. And it's like that sounds good. Let's go, let's go try that out because you're excited about it. Um, and, uh, and there were some ideas percolating, uh, around that. We didn't know exactly where it was going to go. You don't know if there's a there there. And at the same time, there was, a there was, a, another group, uh, of developers who, you know, really were looking at, uh, you know, online games and, and, uh, you know, competitive esports and, you know, can we do something different there? You know, something that doesn't have guns, you know, and, uh, you know, is there a play pattern? Because core, core to our mission is to create something new and, uh, you know, breakthrough experiences, things that people haven't seen before, you know, or played before. And uh, that's the only rule, create something new. And, um, and so there was passion around that. And, uh, and we tried a lot of different experiments you know, things that didn't work and uh, some things that were gaining traction internally. And, and that's how it sort of evolved. And and then, you know, sort of the plan sort of writes itself and it sort of makes sense. Hey, you know, we've got some know-how in, in doing Skylanders and Guitar Hero and hardware and software. And so we can start um, building this. So in the case of what became Mario Kart Live, it was a... It was a hardware software game prototype that was built at Valen. It was a small team, six or seven people, building like 
kit bashing and building the uh, the reference hardware design, and uh, you know, and you know, putting together some firmware and and writing that in that first gameplay prototype and getting it to feel really good. You know, getting that play feel, and essentially the the insight was like getting an RC car to drive like a video game car and having it feel great. And that's how that project came about. That's really cool. And I, I ha- since you reference it, I would love to talk just a bit about Knockout City because yeah. uh, what if, I mean, I, I, what was, what was the pitch and green light process inside of Ellen like with that? <laughs> oh, the funny thing about that was um, it was like, we've been through so many green lights where we'd have big decks and, you know, like, you know, all the analysis of comparables and, and all that. And that actually goes back to the index card or, and even uh, what you mentioned in terms of the Turbo C book and the Autodesk animation package. It's like you start with these simple steps, but simple is hard. <laughs> and we said, well, let's make a different kind of action game. And we thought, okay, well, you know, the, as Karthik mentioned, there's a lot of people that have made gun games and they're really good. <laughs> so we don't really need to identify another specialty gun game. But what if we looked at throwing and catching? Because it's probably the first multiplayer game ever implemented, except we don't see those in games. Turned out it's really good reason why. It's really hard to do the balls. Like, you know, like lots of physics objects in a deterministic uh, simulation for competitive play. Um, but said so throwing and catching could be really fun, but it also opens up a whole different dimension to team play. So let's go after it and say, can we build something here that's really fun? And, and you know, we've, we've, over time, we've really gravitated towards like mechanical design as the first step, meaning don't worry about the IP, don't worry about everything else. Are the base mechanics something that are truly compelling from an interactive standpoint, because that's our medium. It's not, you know, there's many mediums that are visual. There's many mediums that are about narrative and things like that. But our medium is fundamentally interactive. So in that core interactive moment, is there something special about this? And that's, it took us about 18 months to figure that out with a small team on this, you know, because you peel back and there's nothing so trivial about a ball-based game. You know, we started with shooter controls and shooter mechanics, but everything from map design, shooters, you drive people apart, you have certain locations, you often have positioning and aiming, sniping position, doing it from cover. What makes throwing and catching important or fun is facing off and bringing teammates, uh, opponents closer to each other. What makes throwing and catching fun is positioning where you're passing as well. And, um, Actually, there was a remarkable insight by our game director, Jeremy, that, hey, look, position and aiming is what shooters are about, but a ball-based game allows us to go after something different, position and timing. Because ball, you know, if you want to hit somebody with a ball, it's often about faking them out. It's about make, making, them, making it hard to guess what the, what the actual speed and trajectory of the ball is going to come from, how the actual passing game can lead you to more effective mechanics. So this was just a... Um, sort of a promising general area where we're like, there's something there. And then we started building prototypes that got us a little closer, a little closer, but it's all, it was always like a one step forward, two steps back almost until you get over the hump. And about 
12 months into it, we said, okay, we've got, you know, the right mechanics here. This feels really good. This feels like something I want to keep playing because we play it on a daily basis and we weren't getting bored. Mm. We were like, this just feels fresh. And, but it didn't look like anything. It didn't have a whole world built. But then we said, okay, well, now let's build a world. Let's build a world that gives us a permission to feel a little silly. And that one of the interesting things about a ball-based game is you don't have infinite ammo because there are a finite number of balls. And so you have to go search for it. And so you could wind up in a situation where, you know, you don't have a ball, your teammate doesn't have a ball. So what do you do? Well, then you can roll into a ball. So let's create an art style that will actually make that make sense in this world. And so that's how the IP of Knockout City came into the, the first iterations that IP came in. And so a few months later, you know, we had at the end of a 16 month process, something that one felt really good and two started looking like, okay, that's a world that I'd like to be in. Uh, and like to spend some time in. And that's when we actually let it out of the barn. And that's mm-hmm. when we really allowed people outside the studio to be able to take a look. And, um, you know, eventually we we, we took it to publishers uh, to get it out and EA bid and, and, and won the bid process for that. So going back to your question, Ted, about the, the green light process, I mean, like right at the beginning, you know, we're thinking, okay, throwing and catching is interesting at a, as a core mechanic. Let's explore that. And we didn't really even know how should the camera behave? And, and, and somebody said, how, what if it was a third person? And, uh, you know, as opposed to like a court side, you know, kind of kind of view. And there were just a lot of experiments that were done. So we try to structure weekly experiments and where we could start on a Monday and have it be playable by Friday in some rough prototype form and then evaluate Friday. Do we want to keep going with that? Do we want to try something else? And and, uh, you know, approach it that way. We just had to take a, this is not pre-production. It was step before pre-production to even figure out, you know, can we make something fun? And, um, you know, as a, as a core mechanic. And um, what we, we, uh, we, we knew we needed to keep ourselves honest. So it required some peer review outside of the studio and, you know, of course we could test it, but we wanted to put it in the hands of, you know, other um, seasoned designers. And we had the opportunity to do that. And so every three months or so, you know, we had that reviewed and we thought we had it. And every time we thought we had it, 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 it we didn't have it. It wasn't, it, the, the game fell apart for, for whatever reason. And, you know, we get so used to the controls and we fall in love with our own ideas and, uh, and and there are flaws like fundamental design flaws, and uh, <laughs> those would be the most crushing moments when you crushing. think you have something good. Yeah. You think you have something really good, and and you watch the other people play it, and you're like, oh my god, they're hating it. They don't really like it. They're putting it down. They're like done. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's really, you're like okay, let's get back to it. Let's get back to it. So you end up questioning yourself, you know, and even as a team, boy, is this even a good idea? And we're you know we're now six months in. And, uh, you know, think about it and we're like, no. And then we let's let's go for another three months and see see how it goes. And, um, you know, and, and we were we were about a year in and um, every time we thought we had it, we, we didn't quite figure it out. And I think it was like that fourth go around. And, and Jeremy said, I think I know what we're doing wrong. I think I think we can do this. We can take a step back. And uh, there, there are answers here. And, um, 
you know, the, the team was convinced that there was a there there. So we said, okay, let's keep going. And because ultimately that green light was with, with, with me and Guha, you know, to say, should we keep burning cash, <laughs> you know, or, or, or not? And, uh, and the team was growing at that point. Uh, so we were sensitive to that, but we said, all right, let's, let's give it one more shot and then start building the, the world and IP around it. The whole thing was a jerry-rig demo. It worked in the LAN environment, but it could never scale online, but we proved the fun and, and, uh, you know, we took it to E3, we showed it to, uh, to, to publishers, um, behind closed doors and, um, and it was that sigh of relief after that first couple of meetings i think ea ended up being the second meeting that we had because we just had all the publishers lined up and and we were either going to be totally ridiculed you know and and out or maybe we had something there but uh everybody enjoyed it and so then then we knew that we had something and it was sort of an arm's length you know kind of thing but even though we had this sort of core mechanic figured out and and uh, approximation of the world what became evidently clear was uh, existing middleware and tech couldn't get us to the goal line. And, uh, you know, we had to build our own engine from scratch. And it wasn't just sort of building an engine. We had to build our own language that the game was going to be written in. And because um, it turns out that this, the fundamental solution to the, to the problem, especially something that was so Twitch action and uh, seamless and cross-play with, with physics, we had to take that concept of rollback, which is done in fighting games and, and even Rocket League and other other games do it. Um, but we have to roll back the entire simulation, you know, of the game world and all players. And it had to be a more generalized solution set rather than very specific to specific mechanics or, you know, uh, uh, movement. And so uh, that's like hard to get your head around, uh, even as programmers. So we had to develop a language that can run backwards as well as forwards and with its own compiler and, uh, and build that and prove that we could actually rewind time and fast forward time on the client basis and keep it synchronized with the server. And then we had to build an entire engine and pipeline and stuff around that. And there's a small team going after it. And they're like, oh my God, how are we gonna build a modern engine that, uh, um, that can hold up? It's not gonna be obviously as full featured as other engines out there, uh, but could do what we're setting out to do. And, uh, and so we, we went after that and, uh, you know, EA was incredibly supportive, you know, knowing that there was a lot of risks, uh, you know, still, still to get worked out. So these things often take longer than you want, <laughs> but the, but the team, I, you know, I so much credit to the team. Yeah, often it's like always longer than you want. Always longer than you That's want. That's just what it is. I mean, especially when it's, taking a lot of creative new risks uh, in core gameplay yeah. and uh, building the, the technology to suit it. But, but the team really, um, you know, stuck with it. And, uh, and we had a very uh, supportive partner in, in EA uh, in, in going after it. I think, you know, going back to Ted, what you were asking about Greenlight process, we're, there, there were a few kind of businessy criteria that we had, but we try not to make it very restrictive because, um, you know, there was a big project we undertook in the past that had like seven design. It was like, you know, surveyed all the executives and each person had their own thing that the game had to do. So we had seven design restrictions and 
all kinds of business model restrictions and specific cost targets to hit. And, and ultimately what that does is constraint upon constraint upon constraint suffocates the product and ultimately shows up in consumers' excitement for the product as well. They're, just, they're like, I think I've seen it before. And so we said, all right, look, I mean, here's a space that's growing. We know if we can make something unique and really exciting, something consumers can't put down, we could build on it. And we do it as a live service game. And even if we get it just approximately right, we can evolve it. All we need is enough runway to let us do that. And as long as we keep the team small and focused on what's most important, um, we probably could do that. So we had a real confidence that if, we, if we're aiming in the good general direction, where we can actually get it out to market and evolve it with the community and have enough runway to support it, that we can get to our destination. So that was the very loose hmm. sort of business criteria that we had for it. You know, because it's not a crazy product idea. If you have a great action game that's unique, that's competitive, and could be an esport if the community embraces it, there could be a nice business there. But getting there is the hard part, right? Right. And that needs incubation time. And if we constrain that and cut that off and start putting a lot of restrictions on that, then it converges to everything else that's come before. And then opportunity basically goes to zero because where are those people that are playing? They're already playing and very happy in their existing game communities. Right. So that's sort of how we, and, and actually it's not so different from Mario Kart Live as well. It was sort of like, well, I mean, people have people that like RC cars, like RC cars for a reason. People that like Mario Kart itself, like it for a reason or other racing games, like it for a reason. They need to like our game for its own uniqueness and it needs the time to bake, to be able to get that. And we need to be able to provide the structure and the runway um, to offer that up. So that that was sort of how we thought about it. I think that's really impressive. And I, I want to ask you a little bit about how you worked with the team on addressing some of these, what sounds to me like almost insurmountable challenges at the very beginning. And and I mean, uh, Kartha, going back to what you said, Building uh, an engine, a, a new engine, uh, writing vScript, right, that can run backwards and forwards, solving the issue of packet loss, building a brand new IP, working with a brand new partner, right? Those are all incredibly challenging problems on their own, but you tackled them. And were my question for you is, were there doubts on the team about tackling this? And and if there were, how do you how do you manage that as as the folks who are responsible for the company's future? What are the kind of conversations you have to, 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 to share confidence and help everybody sort of move forward as one? Well, Ted, I mean, if you list them all out like the way you did, <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe, we'd, maybe we didn't know at, at the time quite that entire, entire list. Um, you know, there was always that, that doubt, um, you know, that, that's, that's there. I think the key thing is... Um, there was a lot of confidence in each other, you know, as a, as a team. And, and maybe it's because uh, many of the core team members uh, have worked together in the past. It was just, it was very high trust, you know, kind of environment that we can, we can figure this out. And, um, and it was also trying to break things down into prototypes to prove or disprove, you know, the, these ideas you know, these approaches and trying to, is there a way we can like atomically break it down and not take everything on at the same time? Mm -hmm. Like the IP stuff, 
when we started going down the path thinking about the IP while we're trying to, you know, figure out sort of core mechanics or even camera or, you know, uh, the, the role of characters, it was just too many, too many variables at once. So it's like, how do we distill this down to a sort of an atomic core and make that fun? And if, if like, if you can take the IP and all the, 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 the cool visuals, all of those things away and distill it down, like the first uh, prototype to prove vScript and the latency was, was our triangle game. And where we had these triangles throwing other small little triangles over the internet, <laughs> throwing and catching. And we were, we had a lag simulator and, uh, you know, ways to kind of prove or disprove this sort of core idea. And then when we had these triangles moving around, and it was actually our first renderer up and running. And the game is inherently multiplayer and, and we can write the game inherently that way. It was like, we were just marveling at it. You know, and hmm. it's it's distilling it down. I think like distilling down the problem set and getting 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 your head around it that, that was really hard. But like from a team standpoint, um, you know, f- failure is a really good thing, and I think um, once we start understanding and accepting that as a as a very good outcome you know, to sort of prove or disprove stuff. And you're not afraid of failing because that's actually a very positive outcome. Uh, It's pretty liberating in a lot of ways. It's when you have very ambiguous outcomes, you don't know whether something worked or not. That's that, that middling thing is the, uh, is, is, is hard to make decisions, you know, off of. But in saying that, you know, these, something hasn't worked or you put invested time into it, and, um, and and you can move on. It's, it's pretty liberating for the for the team, and I think breaking it down with a with a high trust factor went a long way uh, in terms of taking it one step at a time. You know, there's um, I just like it was actually pretty fun listening to you list all the challenges because I don't think I've ever looked at it quite on a list. Um, you know, and I think the the same thing is true when we first started Vicarious during the early days. If we if we listed all the things we actually had to learn. To make our first video game, we probably wouldn't have done it. And and so it was more like, you know, maybe it's just a lack of understanding of how hard that would be that got us started. And then there was this confidence that, hey, look, I don't know exactly, I know that we're gonna be successful, just not in exactly what manner or in what order. So yeah. there's that old um you know, there's that metaphor of climbing a mountain, how do you do it? One step at a time. <laughs> um and if you just focus on your next step and your next couple of steps, you'll be fine because eventually you'll be at the top. And um, so we do try to break down, you know, the problems and say, well, we can't solve them all at once. But if we lay them out, we can solve them one at a time and each one would be a discovery process to get to the next thing. And I do think that on the realism side, moving away from the idealism, then our responsibility as leaders is to one um, maintain perspective, you know, around that because individuals, could, even ourselves, you know, privately we can also get overwhelmed. But if that's what we telegraph everywhere else, then it's hard for others to, you know, 
take heart, so to speak. So our role as leaders is to be very, you know, be full of realism as far as that goes, but then hopefully break it down into what are the supportive structures? Can I give my team the right kind of runway? So we have the time to fail and then learn. Can, I, can we resource it adequately or change the equation? So a lot of ways the rent engine that our uh, chief programmer wrote was designed to be created by 10 core engineers, not by a team of 100. And there were the active trade-offs that we made up front to say, how can we approach this problem with a small team? Because there's so many advantages to a small team in that situation, <clears throat> including the flexibility, the responsiveness, the simplicity of design, uh, and things like that, they'll actually allow us to solve the problem in with a small team as opposed to a big team. And so it's sort of breaking down the, so saying, okay, well, look, there are an array of challenges. The supportive structures include having a, a vision for the future that sort of makes sense, the first few steps defined uh, a little bit more clearly, Having, you know, you know, for us, our success has entirely been about the team around us and especially the leadership team around us and how they're able to uh, not multiply us, but actually um, be effective way beyond our own capabilities um, and do the same thing for their teams um, to be able to illustrate what that pathway can be. And then you go after it hard and the chances are you're not going to succeed at the, sa- uh, at the first time. And then really just taking a step back and saying, how do we get at this again? And having that mental approach, I think, really helps. Um, and then having the flexibility overall as a studio to be able to support that really helps. Yeah, I'll commend both of you on avoiding the analysis paralysis culture. I mean, clearly, you guys uh, help everybody understand, as, as Guhai, as you said, taking one step at a time instead of just overthinking things is is the way to succeed ultimately, or, or one way to succeed, certainly. But uh, I know that speaking from personal experience, it's so easy to just fall into that hole of, well, this isn't going to work because I've thought it through and I've thought of a million different things that could go wrong. Therefore, we shouldn't do it. And you, again, you guys have sidestepped that. And, and no, I think it's only, it's only because we've been there that we're on the other <laughs> side of it. You know, we, we were, I mean, we had a reputation for complicating everything, you know, <laughs> Like everything is freaking complicated. You wrote your own engine. Why? Why'd you do that again? <laughs> you know that kind of thing. Um, and so now I'm like, uh, whatever problem we come up with, I think we're going to have to write our own engine because that's the only problem <laughs> we solve. Um, so we have a reputation for complicating. We're acutely aware, painfully aware of that. So it's sort of like we try to really overcorrect in the other way. Yeah. That's great. Well, you're also describing to me a a really unique culture. And I would love just to spend a little time talking about your thoughts on on what culture means, right? It's a word that I think everybody sort of overuses. So for you both, what what does the word culture mean? You know, we really really thought a lot about culture and values, the core set of values that were really important at the studio. And uh, the kind of behaviors that that we wanted to um, see how we exhibit ourselves, how we show up uh, as as a team, how we interact with the player community—all of these elements um, were things that we talked about. 
And so much of it is sort of tied into like the respect that we have for each other as team members and to the player community, uh, the responsibility that we take. And so those, those, those key values that bind, uh, bind each of us together, you know, cause we, we've, the, the games themselves are kind of the byproduct of, of the, of the team that you built and, mm. uh, the, the people that you want to work with. So, you know, that something good, good will come out of it. You know, if you build a, a build an awesome team, you know, step one, you know, just where, where there's just a lot of, um, you know, respect for each other and, in, in, in what we do and understanding of each other. Um, and just building that kind of that high trust environment. Now it's a lot, in some respects, it's easier at the beginning, you know, when it's a small group and uh, particularly if there's a group of folks who, who, you know, who largely know each other, uh, you know, from within the industry or work together in the past, because, you know, I, I, I used to say, yeah, you know, we could kind of complete each other's sentences and, um, and and so in that respect, it was sort of easier. But then as you grow, it gets it gets much harder, and you want to have much more of a diverse team, and uh, that are that don't think about things the same way. And so that culture, you know, evolves if if we've got that core foundation, you know, right. So we think about that a lot, and I think we've got you know work to do. Like like I said, you know, I think in the last year and a half some aspects went on autopilot. We're all kind of in our little bubbles at home and, uh, and there are elements that are lost and the, the, the informality and, and kind of being, being together, just the, the, the random punches and stuff where, you know, where, where that, that bonding between team members make all the difference and sometimes breakthroughs come out of it. We're getting back together again and we've got to kind of reform and, and uh, you know, and kind of patch some of the holes that might, might, might have formed during that autopilot, you know, period. I know that's kind of an obtuse way of answering your kind of question, but they're all kind of an interconnected set. Guha? You know, we, we had, um, Carthy, if you remember, we relatively shortly after we started Bell and we had the two of us plus four others, uh, David Nathaniels, Brett Ledger, Chris McAvoy, Jan Eric. And we sat around, <laughs> we were so proud we had a conference table made out of um, uh, roofing timbers from Troy. So they'd been reclaimed. I think the guy that made them stole them from an old building. But in <laughs> any case, he, you know, it was cool. It was really cool. And, and it, was, it was symbolic because Troy itself is an old industrial town. And it's seen better days and uh, better days in the past. It had a very kind of old rust belt kind of feel to it uh, until relatively recently where it's in a bit of an urban renaissance, but there's still lots of poverty around uh, and that kind of thing. Um, And so we really see ourselves as rooted in this community and rooting for this community and income this table symbolizes. So we sat around this table so what kind of company do we want to build? And we sort of said, okay, well, let's write down some words. And that became our values because we knew that the culture is going to change at every stage, mm-hmm. meaning the way people interact with each other is going to change when you change the team configuration, when you change 
when you start increasing scale, when you need now finished products as opposed to just start prototypes. And that's an active process. You know, we've been through that cycle before where several times where you're building and reforming teams and so forth and the habits of people and their backgrounds and where they come from and what's implicit in individual leadership styles, they, they all sort of keep changing. And for that, there's a variety of tools and structures, but you need some kind of centering and some kind of mooring and saying, but what, what are we about? What do we stand for? And that's where we decided to start. And the words that really resonated with us, actually, we had eight at Vicarious and invariably I would miss the last two and there would be the different last two every time because I couldn't remember that many. <laughs> so we have four here. And the, the first one is sort of unconventionally world-class. Even though we're a really small team, we could think about problems differently that could really make a difference to people. That was one. The second one, as Karthik said, was respect and responsibility, um, which is not only for each other, but it's sort of a way of saying, we respect people to make the right decisions. And we respect our players' time to play our games. So it takes a ten care and tending to the work that we make. So it has, the words have meaning beyond just the literal immediate meaning. Staying curious, it's sort of like we'd seen companies ourselves guilty of this. You have a success and you keep doing the same thing. And certainly you become perhaps the best in the world at doing that thing, but you're not inventing new things. So the fundamental reason why we wanted to do Vellum was to keep inventing new things. And so staying curious is going to be super important to us. Um, and the final thing was around community. Um, it's not only the community locally and around us, it was a community of players and evolving experiences with the community, but it was also a community of makers. The notion mm. that we're not just thinkers, we're doers. We actually come up with ideas and we build them. That's what this is about. And so these are the four things uh, that we were really anchoring the studio around. Said, all right, we, we need to revisit this on a regular basis because the way we're mm. effective against these values is just going to change. And I think we need to have, we're embarking on that now that we've, you know, now that Knockout City has gone through the initial sort of spike of live ops and we're getting to a sustainability pattern related to that. Um, we started looking at that again, you know, for a studio now that we just crossed our, recently crossed our 100, 100 studio member mark, which is just very different than six people around the table, right? Do you, do you believe that the uh, values will change or you, that you'll add to them as a result of those discussions? Uh, you know, my hope is that the values don't change as much, but but you never know. I mean, I hope we don't lose any of these sure. as critically important, you know? And at some point, you'll wind up in the situation where you can't remember them anymore <laughs> uh, if, if the number grows too much. And, and, I, and I guess that number is probably six for me because I can always prop the last two of the vicarious ones. But, uh, but I do think that the way we're effective against them will definitely change. Like, what does it mean for people... Sure. I bet I bet people just don't feel it the way they used to a year ago or two years ago because you know they're human systems, right? They keep changing in terms of how you can be effective against them. I think it's a great point because you know just again asking the question, what do these values mean to you today, right? And 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 just getting the answers from folks can really be illuminating um, when it comes to keeping your culture evolving. I mean, that's that's what I found personally, and I always I know I forget to ask that question frequently. Uh, when I'm thinking about our values or our, our vision at Insomniac. So it's awesome that you're, now that you're in that position where you're in sustainability, live ops, uh, yeah. you can go back and revisit it. 
or talk to people about it? No, I mean, like uh, the staying curious. I know what I'm going to find in some of that aspect is like, hey, we got to invent early on. But now we're working on these things that need to be extended. And when, when am I going to be able to invent again? Yeah. And what that means to a person is depend, it, it's different based on who you are. Right? Right. That there are people that truly are want to just be in blue ocean, just want to do something different and new. And life gets old pretty quickly. And others that find innovation in the smallest of things. And they keep a community sort of vibrant. And it takes all to sustain these things. And so um, that's a kind of curiosity we, we need to be practicing, just asking. Well, something you just mentioned, I, I triggered another thought. And you mentioned community. Both of you did. And you know, Velen Ventures, to me, uh, is, to, to me, it, what a great way to, to help the community at large, right? By investing and supporting, I, I'm, I'm assuming, smaller developers who have really cool different ideas. Can you talk a little bit about that and what, what inspired you to add that to what is already a full plate? So we actually uh, started with Valen Ventures first, and then Valen Studios came after. And, um, okay, a you know, it's after. a few Not months a after. after. But, but really, it, it wasn't a um, – we didn't want to start a, a venture capital firm, uh, you know, or – manage other people's money or anything like that or be mired in spreadsheets it was it really goes back to uh you know the the early days of like the mentorship and support um that we we received and how we had a duty to pay it forward um you know within the community both locally as well as um uh so just the industry industry wide and so that was the primary uh, purpose because, you know, quite frankly, if we didn't have those early mentors who really looked out for us and, and those board members who, who really looked out for us as individuals, first and foremost, um, you know, we wouldn't have been able to get the guidance and make those sorts of choices and, you know, feel like we had some, you know, somebody had our backs, you know, and, and really, you know, uh, in our best interests. So Valen Ventures was sort of set up where it gave us an opportunity to do that. It also gave us an opportunity to really go learn and think about um, what else is out there outside of, you know, sort of pure play games. Because, you know, the thesis was to, you know, support, you know, entrepreneurs and uh, within games and in other industries where game design and game technology can have a disruptive impact in their space. It's a way that you know, we, we truly believe that games change the world and there are so many ways that can happen. And and we're seeing how game technologies, game engines, other uh, game design principles are applied outside of games, you know, that can be transformative. And we want to be able to, you know, um, support companies that are going after that because it's a way for us to use some of our knowledge and experience, but also learn a ton and in other industries. And so it was, a, it was an excuse to go play <laughs> really uh, more than, more than anything else and, and, and be students in, in that sense and, uh, and meet other entrepreneurs. And so that's given us a way to uh, a vehicle to go, um, you know, you know, help fund uh, other startups um, and even in non-financial ways, you know, putting in, putting in time um, whether it's with different 
university programs uh, or being able to just provide, be a sounding board for other startup teams and studios who may have their funding source but need another set of eyes or somebody else to talk to. You know, of course, that's inherently bandwidth limited <laughs> uh, by by what we can offer, but uh, uh, it's it's been it's been super fun so far. That's inspiring. I mean, it's a way of saying youthful, really, because there's nothing you can't learn. I found I, I don't want you to you probably maybe you have a similar experience. If a person's really working hard on their uh, business, you know, whether it's a studio or it's a game related technology. They're they're the best people to learn from. You learn so much just talking to them. But, but by having some skin in the game and supporting them, this is kind of creative exchanges that you don't get anywhere else. Um, and so I think it's like a huge benefit for us. I mean, I think it can be a good. These can be good financial investments as well. And so then other people also invest around us. So we don't. It's not play money, so to speak. Um, and it keeps it rational. So we try to go after the ones that really look like they have potential for breakthrough. Mm-hmm. But we can also assess it from a perspective of, does this have the potential, like if it's, a, uh, if it's an experience type company, it could be a game company. We invested in um, uh, uh, Greg Lopiccolo and Tom Leonard's company, Tonestone, recently. Um, and it, I mean, it is a type of experience that can be transformative. It needs some escape velocity, but it has that potential. Very few angel investors or seed investors can really lens that the way that you can or Karthik or I can in terms of the experience of it. It could be a cool in a category. You could say, hey, look, I mean, what their business is about is um, uh, being able to offer a, a fun, engaging, sort of game-like way of composing music. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, coming back from there, you know, from Greg's harmonics experience uh, and that kind of thing. And so you look at that and you're like, well, that, that could be amazing for TikTok users to create their own soundtracks, because especially as um, the uh, DCMA uh, comes down and then shuts down all the unlicensed use of music in, in short form video, this would be a great tool. But that's just one, one type of application for it. Now, bridging that from where they are to where they need to go. That's a hard thing to do for financial investors right now, but it's a type of thing that we could really get behind and support. So they're interesting opportunities, but really it keeps us young and curious. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, it does sound like a lot of fun, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. It's super. Yeah. It's, it's, it's also, you know, it's a different, you know, like you were talking about how do you maintain a level of energy through the obstacles and, um, through building Melon Studios, for example, or anything else. And you're like, well, look, I mean, look at these people. I mean, building is, any company is difficult, especially in the early stages. And you can take a lot of encouragement out of the people that are just willing to put everything into it. Totally. Well, it's that act of creation that, though, is it continues to be sort of the, the energy in our motors or the fuel in our you know, motors, really. At least for me, I, I know that's the case. Regardless yeah, totally. of... You know, if it's a game or a culture or whatever you're building, as long as we get to build something, mm-hmm. it's pretty fantastic. Mm-hmm. It is, and it's just inspiring to see. I, well, you know, as we come to sort of a, a close, I, I want to ask you just a couple questions, broader questions about the industry, given that you guys have been in it longer than the majority, vast majority of folks who are probably listening to this today. 
what are, after so many years, what are some things that uh, you like most about our industry today? And, and what are some things that you'd like to see change? I'll tell you the thing that, uh, for me, the most inspiring thing about the industry is how, you know, small teams, new teams, the little guy, quote unquote, they can come out of nowhere and and disrupt even the biggest players. And, you know, we've seen this, we've seen this over and over again in, uh, you know, throughout the years, you know, whether it was, um, you know, whether it was the early pioneers, you know, disrupting computing and stuff with gaming to begin with, or even as things were getting bigger. I mean, I, as we were starting out in CD-ROM and multimedia and these big budgets, uh, full motion video, all of those sorts of things were, were taking off and the teams were getting big and, you know, id software comes out, you know, with, with Wolfenstein 3D and then Doom and, and, uh, and 3D gaming and this small, you know, scrappy team. It just really disrupts that flow and, uh, you know, sets new standards. And we, we've just seen this over and over again. And we're going to continue to see, continue to see that, and that that excites me so much because I think it's just different kind of thinking. It it uh, it is that disruptive innovation that pushes, you know, everybody forward. Um, you know what I would like to see more of, and this is the this is the challenging uh, thing. I mean, as as franchises become really big, and you you know, these are billion dollar multi-billion dollar franchise games. There's a ton of value in that, but, uh, but companies can end up focusing purely on that. And, uh, and, and the pendulum swings sort of the other way, you know, where it's, it's just, um, I don't want to say more of the same because that makes it sound, you know, bad, but it's it's much more that's just a sort of sustainable innovation and iteration, and those companies have a tremendous amount of capital that they could deploy. You know, the the trouble is that the the human capital is it's just a high opportunity cost. You want all the your top people working on the thing that's making the money, as opposed to <laughs> moving that talent to doing something really speculative. And uh, that innovator's dilemma is really challenging. And, uh, you know, and I'd love to see how um, some of the bigger ca- companies um, deploy their capital in, in other ways to, uh, to, to, to work around that innovator's dilemma so that it, it brings that capital to um, the risk takers, you know, where there's uh, no certainty, uh, you know, on success, but we need to keep fueling that as much as possible. Because that's what's going to actually, you know, rise the tide for everybody. You know, in terms of like what I love about the industry, it's just exactly like Karthik's answer. <laughs> but so I won't repeat that. But uh, in terms of what I'd like to see change, you know, I think that for us, if we look at the industry as a whole between like product creation and then go to market and publishing and getting to the consumers, there's a, some, some level of diversity there. You know, gender diversity, uh, ethnic diversity, um, you know, geographic from a country by country standpoint as well. I do see a lot less in development Hmm. and it is a real challenge. It's not an easy one. It's not one that we can wish away. 
And I think that it really, what makes it particularly challenging is development is hard. It's on tight timelines. You know, we try to keep, you know, financial constraints are demanding. And the pipeline is, it takes so long to develop. You know, getting, for example, for programming talent, getting them to take on roles in professional development really starts in the teenage years. And even earlier from a numerical facility standpoint, from an education standpoint, and so forth, you know, by middle school, you sort of get, you know, it's not guaranteed, but a lot of the, a lot of the sort of the differentiation, a lot of the sort of the kind of the bifurcation of genders in terms of quantitative STEM curriculum versus not starts happening around that time. And I think that as an industry, I'd love it if we can really reach deep into the pipeline to figure out how we can solve this, because it's not easy to solve on a one, two, five-year basis. But if we reach down 10 years into the pipeline, we can start seeing meaningful change. That sixth grader in 10 years can become, well, can become a college graduate and start game developing. So just addressing it in terms of hiring practices and things like that is sort of like skimming the surface. And I, I think they run into all the practical difficulties of the existing business constraints. But if we really reach deep in terms of the pipeline in a decade or so, and you know, that seems for a young person, a decade seems like a long time. For me, it seems like, oh, that's going to go by quickly. Um, but if we look at the long game like that, we can make a meaningful difference, you know, everywhere. So I think that that's, that's what I'd love to see changed. That's a fantastic call to action. I agree. Um, so I hope th- there are a lot of folks listening here who can be uh, active in those areas. And I think a lot of people who are, uh, but clearly we need to be even more aggressive with our efforts. Yeah. And I think as, as developers, we can we do our piece of saying, okay, well, we're in the industry, now let's see how we can get you know deeper into education, deeper into the pipeline, deeper into the communities, don't have access yeah. to it, and partner with you know, there's so many over the years we've worked with so many of our local school districts um, to be able to bring some of that curriculum. One of the observations I was making with uh, one of our leaders here was that, you know, through the pandemic, you know, before we used to go into the schools, but it just fundamentally limits your reach. And through the pandemic, I think we found all sorts of ways to get into schools, you know, through remote um, for really creating programs that are resonant. And so we have a reach now that we haven't had before. And I think that that's a way of visualizing the community that we need to get to as well. That's an excellent point. We should all be taking advantage of that. So thanks for bringing that up. And and, and thank you both for being here and for sharing so much. Uh, I, I really enjoyed listening to all parts. I mean, especially your history and, and background and, and how you've evolved culture at uh, Valen. So thanks, you guys. Awesome, Ted. Th- thank you so much, Ted. Yeah. It was really fun chatting with you. I want to turn the tables and uh, pick your brain (laughs) and uh, get 90 minutes to ask you questions. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully we will be able to see each other face to face if, you know, when the world gets back to normal. I said, I feel like I said that last year to folks and uh, gosh, we're not repeating the same thing, but it would be nice to see each other at conferences again as an industry. Yeah. Let's hope for that. Let's hope for, uh, for dice next year. (laughs) Well, always the optimist. That will be soon. Right on.
Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org. The Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences is excited to share that the 2022 DICE Summit and DICE Awards will be returning in person to the gorgeous Mandalay Bay Resort and Delano Hotel in Las Vegas on February 22nd to 24th, 2022. We'll be celebrating the 25th anniversary of the DICE Awards and bringing together industry leaders to share their ideas about the many facets of the interactive entertainment industry. Stay tuned to www.interactive.org and our Twitter at official underscore AIAS for more details coming soon, including special anniversary rates. We can't wait to see you again.